Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. Lucia Trimber is an associate professor of sociology and American studies at John Jay College and the Graduate Center at the City University of New York and a global fellow at the University of Edinburgh. She's the author of the book, Come Out Swinging, The Changing World of Boxing and Gleason's Gym, published in 2013 by uh, Princeton University Press. And moreover, she's also currently working on a book that we are really excited about called Lights Out, The Creation of the Concussion Crisis, which is under contract with Columbia University. And it focuses on the concussion crisis in U.S. football. Lucille, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So how are you holding up in New York at the beginning of 2021? I am actually in Rhode Island. Um, I have chosen to uh, quarantine with my family and we're holding up pretty well. Uh, Nobody has um, had COVID um, and we've managed to stay healthy um, and under the circumstances, um, I think that's the, the most that we can ask for. Absolutely. Yeah. Seriously. That, that is literally, yeah, absolutely the most that we can, that we can hope for. And especially being able to spend it with family. That's, that's really amazing. Yeah. Um, and so we'd love to start by discussing the research that you're working on for this new book on the concussion crisis in football. Um, and so from our understanding, the book focuses on how new medical understandings of concussions are changing both the rules of the game and also how it is understood and experienced by players. And so we'd love if you could start out by laying out for us how the medical understanding of of concussions have changed in recent years, what they tell us about the dangers of U.S. football from a health perspective, and how the sport has adapted to mitigate mitigate harm in the face of these enormous risks. Sure. So um, as an ethnographer, my interest uh, really is less in the state of scientific or medical research. Um, and more about how a shared desire um, among really a motley crew of uh, football enthusiasts uh, come together um, to reduce the number of concussions or even unnecessary contact, um, and how that shapes rule changes and shapes the meanings that players attach to the game. So I locate myself more sort of in a symbolic field than in, in the world of public health. That said, I think now it's pretty safe to say that there is a link between moderate and severe traumatic brain injury and a greater risk of developing dementia. Um, That's been proven um, over and over again in in studies, Um, and that increased risk can be anywhere from from 2 to 4.5 times um, as great. I think it's also safe to say that repeated brain injuries like those in contact sports, such as American football, um, are likely linked to a greater risk of CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. 
beyond that, the discussions really become, you know, wildly more specialized and more about study design. Um, but I think that that we can say that that there is uh, a, a, a strong link that really causes us to pause and to think about the way we play contact sports um, and the way that we prepare our athletes to play those sports. Now, as you asked about changes, and there have been interventions, um, as you say, to, to mitigate harm. Um, I became interested in, um, in the Ivy League in particular. Um, it's now called the, the Future of Football. Um, because it was the first conference to introduce real um, dr dramatic, uh, real serious measures to reduce concussion to re and to reduce hits. Um, and from my perspective, it did four things that matter. Um, the first and most significant is that the Ivies introduced fairly strict limitations on the kinds of practice teams could have. So in 2010, Dartmouth stopped contact practices. Um, so no live tackles and uh, no taking a player to the ground. Um, and in the in 2016, the entire Ivy League ag agreed to ban this um, during the regular season. So some, some of the Ivies uh, have banned it during preseason and uh, during spring ball, uh, and then others just ban it during regular seasons. And I found that really in intriguing. That's that really, I mean, foot football practice without contact, you know, I, I found to be a, a, a pretty interesting intervention. So that I think is probably what we could all agree is a, a very um, important intervention. Mm -hmm. And the second, the second intervention has been a change to kickoffs. Um, and this is the Ivy League is, uh, um, you know, was the first to do this, but the NCAA has since uh, put pressure on conferences to do it. The NFL has done it, I think, mixed, with mixed results. But basically, the uh, the coaches of the Ivy League got together and realized that um, kickoffs were about 5% of all plays, um, but 20, 21% of all reported concussions. Uh, so they decided to move the kickoff line from uh, the 30, 35 to 40-yard line, um, I think, in, in hopes of uh, increasing the number of touchbacks um, so that the, the ball essentially is not advanced by the receiving team. Um, and according to you know, studies that have looked at this, um, the concussion rate dropped from about 11 uh, concussions per 1,000 kickoffs to two. Wow. And it's possible that the kickoff... Um, Kickoffs will be banned entirely at some point in the future. I know that that's on the table um, in the Ivy League. Um, and I was in a team meeting um, where the team that I work with had had performed um, subpar, let's say, um, and particularly uh, in in kickoffs. And, um, and the coach said, "You know, th there's a there's there's an army of people in the Ivy League who." who want to get rid of kickoffs, but, you know, y'all are ambling down the field and are an infomercial for why there's no harm at all during kickoffs. Um, so whether they will ban kickoffs remains to be seen, um, but it is, it's certainly on the table. I think the other two things that have been less publicized, but 
but important are the sort of constant monitoring, the epidemiological um, investigations into really every single concussion that is reported in Ivy League and in the Big Ten. So Ivy League and uh, came together with the, the Big Ten to create this sort of um, consortium. Um, and they get together once a year and they look at the every single concussion and the circumstances under which that concussion took place, uh, what the responses to that concussion were. And the idea is that that data will inform future future interventions. Um, so that I think, you know, is, and that's not just for football, I should say that that's for contact sports. And the last one, which I, I, I haven't, I have to say, I have not seen, um, though there, there is a lot of, um, discussion about it is, is more strict penalties for flagrant hits. So anytime that there's helmet to helmet contact, what we call targeting, uh, that a player is immediately suspended from the game. So those are really the four things that um, that that the Ivy League, which you know is the is the conference that I'm studying, um, has put in place to address the the number of concussions um, within the sport. And they have trickled down. Um, they're not necessarily um, informing the NFL's policies or the policies of um, you know other more competitive conferences. Uh, but Pop Warner has taken up some of these recommendations and um, and state athletic um, associations have have taken up really reducing the number of practices in which there's full contact. Okay, well, thank you for that. That was absolutely a superb overview of the kind of terrain that we're talking about here. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of desperate to jump into the um, ethnographic stuff that you've been gesturing to. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to hold off for a second because you also just, you know, you're, you're making me want to ask um, <laughs> a really big question. I have to say, I, I apologize to you for asking such a big question so early on, but uh, I want to know for you, because we're going to talk about your research and the, um, you know, the, the players and participants and their kind of views and experiences and all that, as you say, the meanings that they derive from the sport. Yeah, sure. That's what you understand as a researcher. But I want to know you, Lucia, is football salvageable as an ethical enterprise, given what you have laid out? Understanding, you know, and I understand that you're clearly saying these mitigation efforts are good. Of course, I would agree with you on that. Um, they're necessary, right? So we have, we're, there's no debate here about that. But the question is, are they enough to salvage this enterprise in your mind? So I, I had a feeling you would ask a question like this. Um, and I, <laughs> I suppose I'm going to skirt it slightly. Um, you know, th this was a question that I was asked over and over and over again when I was doing research in the boxing gym. Um, you know, is this ethical? Can you morally defend yourself um, for studying this, for working with boxers? And what I would say, and it's not, it may not be satisfying, um, but that my, my job as an ethnographer um, is really not to weigh in pro or con, but to look at social patterns and to look at lived experience and to think about the meanings that people attach to those to those lived experiences, but also 
what is behind the quest for those lived experiences. And I think in the case of football, football's um, American football, uh, professional football, the, the, the viewership has gone up during the quote unquote concussion crisis. Um, it has, more people are watching it now than did before. And I think that that, that, that intervening then and saying, ethically, this is not salvageable is not a way that we can protect players. Um, and it's not a way that um, we can make sure that everybody um, can play under, yeah, under the, the, the safest um, circumstances possible. I think that it's, it's a social phenomenon that exists. And the best thing that we can do is understand it from a range of perspectives. So I, you know, I, I think it's, is it a violent sport? It's a violent sport. Um, but then I think we live in a violent culture. Um, you know, we, we support war. We, um, you know, we, 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 we do things in this country. We send our taxpayers dollars, uh, to support institutions that, that, that are violent. So I think that my interest is more in putting it into context. Why are so many people watching it? What do they get out of it? Um, why do so many people play? The number of people who are signing up for football is, is going down. But the number of kids from modestly resourced inner city, inner city areas, primarily kids of color, is going up. And so I think we can't ignore those trends. And I think that that one of the one of the tragedies of the quote unquote con concussion crisis um, is that uh, is that very early on there were two polar opposites, um, and there was absolutely no way to have a discussion. Um, and there were, you know, the, the medical community was in one area, the public health officials were in another area, the NFL was in another area, and you know, the players were in another and, it, you know, neither the two shall meet. So I think that's the best that I can do in terms of an answer. Um, and I think that the sport, I, I, and I think that, well, yeah, so I would also say that I think that the sport can be made significantly safer. Um, but, you know, it's also important to put it into context, which is that, um, you know, football is a sport that has constantly been responding to the harms endured on the field. So, you know, I was reading recently the Carnegie Report of 1929. In 1905, 18 players died on the field. Um, now, I'm not saying that we want to go back to a place where there was no forward passing. Um, but I, I think that rules are not static and protocols are not static and that there are a fair number of things that that can be done to make this more safe um you know when i was in the gym i would say to to people do, do you th you know do you think that boxing should be abolished and the the boxers would say sure this is vicious and brutal and we're getting our heads smashed in. But until you give us an alternative, this is what we have. And I guess that's really how I feel about football. This is what we have. So how can we understand the multiple 
meanings of football? Um, and then how can we get people on board to, to see if, you know, to see if these interventions will work? Um, and, and if they don't, then we'll have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. No, I actually find that really compelling for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, we had um, Victor Ray on the podcast mm -hmm. uh, a little while back, and um, we were talking about similar sorts of issues in the context of U.S. politics. And he sort of said, listen, I mean, voting for Joe Biden, uh, let's call it a form of harm reduction. Yeah, right, right, right. right. the vanishing point that we're pushing towards, but like there's also meaning in that. There's like a real, genuine, authentic value in that harm reduction. Yes. we shouldn't kind of push that away. And I'm hearing that in what you're saying, right? Because these efforts to mitigate harm, they're real. Um, and Absolutely. they can have tangible impact on people's lives, right? And so it would be, I think, totally unproductive. And I think it would also, frankly, put the lie to our concerns for people's welfare if we just like ignored those as a meaningful um, pathway for improvement, you know? So yeah. I, I hear that loud and clear. I, I think that for the most part, when we think about it too, it's like we have this vanishing point, which is, I would say for me, you know, I've comfortably said it before, the abolition of the sport, kind of as those boxers were talking about. But I actually don't see any contradiction in what you were saying earlier in terms of like, should I study this thing that potentially deserves to be abolished? To me, I mean, to me, actually, the answer is resoundingly yes to that, because yeah. the, the people suffering are not the problem. You know what I mean? Like the football players, the workers in this sport, they deserve all of our empathy and solidarity. Um, yeah. And so their experiences could not be more important and more meaningful and deserving to be kind of disseminated as widely as possible. Uh, and it's a very complicated thing to push for the end of this thing that they have devoted themselves to, as you were kind of getting towards at the end there. Really complicated because essentially what I, I was hearing what you're saying is like we need, if we're going to abolish something like football or boxing, especially given what you say, which is that there's obvious, there are obviously structural factors that mean that the participants are increasingly the people that are denied opportunity elsewhere in our society because of uh, the essentially structural racism um, and capitalism. Yeah. We, we have a situation where like football provides an opportunity in a deeply unjust and inaccessible society. And higher education is an example of that, right? In football and yeah. higher education. So when you shut the door on football, if you're not changing the society, right, yeah. then you're actually closing off one of the only opportunities available. So any kind of movement to abolish a sport like football requires a form of reparation hand in hand, mm -hmm. right? Like you have to actually produce conditions for people to move on without football, you know? So I, I just, I just wanted to kind of follow up what you said, because I, I found like, I, I really don't, I don't want listeners to, I think, have the perspective that, that, we are even kind of debating that point. Yeah, I think, like, yeah. I don't disagree with you at all that, that boxing and football, like these sports, to me, actually, there's a greater imperative to study them than other sports, precisely because of the level of harm, right? And just like studying the military and the experience of soldiers in the military is an incredibly important line of inquiry <laughs> right. um, as yeah. well. Well, I, but I would say that we have to be careful about that. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure I would go as far as is introduce um, abolishing abolishing football. Um, I would have to think more about that. Um, I, I, I think what one of the interests that I have in this project is how football became, how, how, um, how the concussion crisis became coded as uniquely football, as a football mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, when you look at, you look at the studies and again, you know, I, 
I, I only, I, I do it to try to keep up on the literature, but you know, not, not with any type of rigor, to be honest, but depending on what your variables are and what your population is and what your, you know, what your sample is and what your study design is, you know, um, college wrestling can actually have a higher rate of concussion than football and, and men's and women's hockey often have rates that are, that, that, that rival that of football. And so I think, you know, part of my interest is in why, why we have focused so much on, on football when, you know, look at hockey where you have checking is legal. Um, I think that there it's, it's possible that there could be a range of sports that we need to look at in terms of what, what, what types of how how their how their their participants fare in the long term totally and 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 you're talking to someone who actually my my previous book uh was about hockey and these issues um yeah. so i i hear you loud and clear on on that question uh i i don't think that football is unique i think it's it's fair to say that football is unique i wonder though like if it's easier to um to make rule modifications in a sport like hockey yeah, that can yeah. preserve the essence of that sport and almost totally remove the extreme harm, right? Whereas, yeah. like, I mean, like flag football is a delightful activity and sport. Yeah. Uh, it's really fun to play. And, you know, my daughter loves playing flag football, but is that going to produce the political economy we see in tackle football? Right. No, I don't think it is, right? So, I mean, I don't think that that's a, a realistic movement necessarily or a resolution to this. Yeah. But I mean, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And then of course, like the issues in soccer, um, et cetera. So rugby. So yeah. I mean, I rugby, think that, exactly. that some of the, that, that the UK is really sort of answering back to the U S right now, um, on, on the, the, the question of the, the link between dementia and, and, and contact sport and, um, it, the sort of catching up to, to the concern. I mean, one thing that I would say about, I think you're right about hockey. And I think it's probably this, I mean, look it, in terms of uh, soccer, you know, substitution roles, which, you know, the, the, the researchers are, are split about the efficacy of that, but you know, the, the a problem was identified and the substitution rules went into effect, right? Just like you said, that, that would, I mean, that took decades in the NFL to even get an acknowledgement that there need to be some changes. So I think the NFL, I think what is unique about football, American football is that the NFL is, you know, this just mammoth organization that has phenomenal amounts of power. You know, when it comes to flag football, it's interesting because, um, you know, a lot of states, I mean, this, this may have to happen from youth up, um, but a lot of states are, are looking at abolishing um, contact, even, even modified, what they're calling modified tackle football um, until 12 or even, or even high school. So it's going to take a real cultural change. I mean, I think here that it's not just players versus you know, the sort of superstructure of sport, but it takes coaches, it takes, you know, parents, it takes, um, you know, a, a range of sort of medical trainers. I mean, I, I've worked really closely with a medical trainer and I've just learned so much. And I'll tell you, a Hawkeye on the field who can spot a concussion makes a huge change in a person's life because that person's going to recover quicker. That person's going to be able to go back to class quicker, et cetera, et cetera. So 
you know, my, one of my, one of my most um, helpful informants is actually my father, um, who, uh, who was all state California as a running back and um, was, was recruited to Stanford to play. Um, and, you know, my father played, he played flag football until the ninth grade. Um, so, you know, are we going to go back to the fifties or, you know, early sixties? I'm not sure, but there have been different derivations of the sport that perhaps, um, starting at the grassroots level, you know, we could, we could really, um, we could really encourage and the players themselves might, you know, be willing to encourage. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to kind of go kind of add on to or like build on what you've just been talking about, because you've been sort of teasing us a little bit with um, the sort of your site of research and who you have been talking to. And so we'd love to hear more about this to the extent that we can. Sure. Um, and so, yeah. and so um, could you give us a sense of the methodological orientations of your work? Um, like I said, who is the, what is the site of your research and who, in sort of a general sense, um, what kinds of people have you had the chance um, to interact with and sort of interview for the study? Sure. Yeah, this is like the, this is my favorite topic um, is the methodological side is always my favorite part. So you may actually have to cut me off. Um, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, I can talk a little bit later about um, how I got interested in concussion because I, I actually was was just like adamantly not interested in concussion for a long time. Um, and it was actually a topic that I, I would just change the subject whenever it came up in sporting circles. Um, but once I, I decided to look at this no, no contact um, practice policy, um, I decided to uh, to do participant observation research with a division, what I call a division one team in the Northeast. Uh, and I, you know, as an ethnographer, I just spend phenomenal amounts of time with people hanging out, watching, talking, listening, um, and enjoying. I love being around athletes. Um, and uh, when I was in the gym, you know, some of some of the years of my research, I, I did up to 70 hours in of, of research in the gym per week. And I, this project was a little bit more scaled back just because of the, the ebb and flow of, of team meetings and NCAA restrictions. Um, but basically what I did and or what I've done is a lot of participant observation research. And um, that really has entailed... Uh, affixing myself, and I think the uh, O line would probably say uh, very tightly um, to to them. So uh, there's there's big debates in the literature about what position has the most concussions, or what position has the most um, serious concussions, and there's a debate about uh, safeties and about uh, offensive linemen, but. I decided to work with offensive linemen. And um, so my sort of weekly schedule was that um, I would show up for position meetings um, somewhere around 2 p.m. I'd also sort of like mosey in the offices before that and kind of, you know, check in on people and see what was see what was going on. Um, but position meetings tended to be um, tended to start at two o'clock and go to 3.30 or four. Um, and those meetings were, you know, again, only offensive linemen and, and the offensive lineman coach, uh, and, you know, they might be reviewing, um, the team 
it, de- it depended on what that week, what, what day that week, and then what was going on in the weekend, but um, either talking about the practices that were coming up or, or, or reviewing the team that they were playing on Saturday. I'd then go to practice. Um, and so the practice was, you know, several hours after that. Um, and usually, you know, I, I had unfettered access, which is, you know, just incredible. Um, I, I'm, I'm really, really, really grateful to, to the coaches, um, and, uh, to the players for, for giving me such access during the practices. I, I tried to stick with the O-line, um, but, you know, often the O-line were doing drills and there were far more interesting things going on on other parts of the field. So, you know, if there was something that I, I thought was, I don't know, kicking practice or something else, I would sort of meander down one of the fields. Um, and I often stuck around with the medical trainers too, um, because that was, a, you know, my best way of seeing uh, the response to injuries in real time. I went to all the games um, and I went to all team meetings uh, and those were, you know, generally uh, meetings before, uh, right before games or meetings on Sundays that reviewed games. Um, and so those, you know, those were a couple of hours each. And then I did get to go, the, the coaches and the, and again, the, the, um, the players were really, really kind in letting me come into the locker room. Um, during before a game in in the middle of a game so that I got a sense of what was happening at halftime uh, when we almost uh, invariably were losing. Uh, so those are sort of um, that's a that's a participant observation side is as many hours um, as I could. Um, sometimes if there wasn't anything going on with O line, I would pop into um, you know, a quarterback's meeting or, you know, another position. Um, I really like the coaching staff of this, this, uh, of this school. Um, and it actually changed halfway through my research, which created a huge panic because I had gotten fantastic access with this one, with this one coaching staff. And then they were all fired in November of, uh, of, of the, the second year that I had worked with them. And that, that was just a disaster. So, but but luckily, the, the next wave of coaches also gave me incredible access. And, wow. uh, you know, they, they put me on the Google Calendar and I could just choose which meeting to go to, really. Um, whether it was a compliance meeting, which I really wanted to go to, whether it was about eating, whether it was about schoolwork, um, I really got to, to, to go to those meetings. Um, and the next phase is in-depth interviewing, um, which I was set to do in the fall. Um, that's been challenged a little bit. Um, I, I probably can do them over Zoom, though methodologically, I really prefer to do them in person. So I am, I am sort of in the 11th hour here and, 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 and uh, holding out hope that I'll be able to do them in person. Um, but those will be with a, a, range of, um, a range of people who are interested in the sport. You know, on any given day on the field, there were there were really a lot of different people, very similar to a boxing gym. You know, you see, think think of a a, a sporting space as that of um, uh, the the trainers or the coaches and the athletes, but there are just such different types of people who pop up. We had NFL scouts who I thought were really interesting, who were always eager to chat. Um, again, the medical trainers, um, past coaches, high school coaches. Um, 
was really a, a very vibrant place to be. So I've I've done some informal interviewing, but but nothing formal. And I really do, um, I have to do the formal interviewing part. Um, I may do some archival work. I did archival work for the boxing project, and um, that that turned out to be I didn't know it at the time, but it ended up being immensely useful. Um, too, I, I looked at the history of, of, of boxing training starting in the 18th century. Um, and with this project, I think that there, there's a, probably a compelling argument to look at, to do some archival research on really specific rule changes over time. Um, but that, yeah, that's the, that's the, 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 the methodological part. I, I go to preseason where there is tackling at this particular school. Um, so I do pre-season, pre regular season. There are winter workouts. Um, I've gone to one season of those and I've done one season of spring ball. Um, so I guess that's three, three regular seasons, two pre-seasons, and then a winter and a, and a spring ball. Wow. Thank you so much. That was such an amazing answer. And I just, and I, I have a lot of questions that I'm sure Nathan does too. And, and I guess for me, the first question I have is like, is why, like, why would a team agree to do this? It, just in the sense of like, you know, what you're doing, it, it's critical work. And like, yes, you are, your aim is to sort of understand sort of how their ecosystem works and how they all fit together and sort of how decisions are made and how people understand them. But I guess I'm from like a football perspective, I'm kind of wondering, you know, why would they agree to do this? So I'm curious, like any insight you could kind of give to that and sort of any insight to the extent that it's possible about how you kind of negotiated this sort of agreement with the team, especially when you said that the whole the whole football coaching staff got uh, fired and sort yeah. of replaced by a whole new one. I, I, I can't imagine how stressful that might have been. So anything else you can give about that would just be really, really fascinating to listen to. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I always assume this is now my third ethnography. Um, you know, this this the second one that I've I've chosen to um, you know to work on publicly and turn into a book. Um, and I always assume nobody's going to want to talk to me. I always assume it's going to be like a painful process that I'm going to have to like argue. And I'm actually an introvert. I'm actually a shy person. So for me to sort of go cold. Um, onto a football field where there's like a hundred men like running. Cause it's two fields, right? There's, there's a, a field for the first string and then there's a field for, um, you know, the second string. Uh, and so you, you know, you often get men rushing by you and you're just sort of in the middle in this like swath of land. Um, it was, I found it extremely intimidating. Um, and, and, you know, that that's coming from somebody who worked in a boxing gym for, for years. Um, so I assume nobody would, you know, why, why would they, right? What, what is the advantage? I mean, I think that one thing that I've learned is that athletes do like to talk about themselves and about their sport. Yes. Um, and that, um, you know, they're, they're people, people like to, to sort of talk about, you know, their subjectivities and their identity formation and their relationship to the sport. Um, and those are so varying, um, you know, even on the same team. Um, so among the, the, the players, I mean, football players are also, I have to say, I mean, maybe this is a gross generalization, but I found them to be a pretty friendly group of people. Um, and I also found boxers to be a pretty friendly group of people. But there were so many people who came up and just said, hey, I've seen you here. You're here all the time. 
what are you doing? Um, and, and then there was always some connection. Oh, you know, you're from Modesto. My dad's from Modesto. Oh yeah. You played football there. Do you know, you know, there was just sort of always some commonality. Um, so, so they, they were, they were probably the easiest to get access to. Um, and people who, who wanted to talk the most, um, especially as the coaching staff was changing. So I think, so first when I started to do research during the preseason, people thought I was a psychologist and I had to keep saying, no, 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 that's a different thing. I can't, I had the same problem in in the boxing gym. And so I remember their kickers, there was just some, some kickers who were extremely anxious and um, I was a really anxious athlete. And so I can often give off very anxious vibes if somebody else is anxious, so anxious that, um, a number of the coaches wouldn't let me near the women boxers before they boxed because if they said, Oh, you know, I'm just feeling this way. I'd be like, Oh my God, I don't know how you do it. I would be just racked with anxiety. I mean, aren't you hungry? And so the coaches were like, no, Lucia goes nowhere near Ronica until she's completed her. So I, I guess I was, I was banned of sorts. Um, when these kickers started panicking, uh, I just said, I, I am not, I'm not a, a, a psychologist, um, but I think that if this continues to be something that makes you anxious, see someone because there are sports psychologists who can really help you. Um, during that preseason, um, there was increasing discontent with that coaching staff that ultimately was fired the next year. And so I think people liked having a soundboard or a witness. So people would come up, you know, people on the O-line would come up and like roll their eyes. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I just sort of nod, um, and say, you know, I, 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 I see what you see. Um, and I think that at one point there was a miss, there were just mismatches, um, with who the student body was and, and, and what the coaching staff could do when the new coaching staff came in, I really don't know why they allowed me to come in. Um, because, you know, secrets are like a big part of football, right? Like what, what your, what your offensive line is going to do, what types of plays your, your quarterback are going to run. I, I mean, I had all the play sheets um, and you know, that I think um, the, the, the coaches were somewhat interested in having their first couple years documented. Um, and the head coach is a really interesting person um, who I, I did have a connection to in a, in a different realm. Um, so I, I wasn't, I, I can't say I completely went in cold. I, I had connections, um, to the, to not to this team, but to the, to the universe of this team. Um, and the, the, the coach, the head coach is just really interested. I mean, I said, here's what I'm interested in looking at. And he was like, okay, cool. Like, let me know what you need. Um, I can't wait to see what you, what you write. And he's a really upbeat person. Like he's really positive. He will run from one field to the other and say, awesome. You know, you're like, what are you talking about? Awesome. Or it's raining, it's snowing. Everybody's miserable. Awesome. And, um, I remember sending my book proposal to him at one point and saying, I, you know, I, I, I just want like full disclosure. These are what the chapters are going to be. And, um, and he wrote me back. This is going to be awesome. You know, I mean, not nothing like 
I'm a little concerned that this might show what our strengths are in terms of this area or weaknesses in this area. Never, never. Um, it was always, I mean, I, I promise not to share plays with other teams, um, but it really, it, it, that wasn't, that, that was sort of never a concern. And now I know them socially. I mean, now I really respect the coaches and a lot of them have children that are my daughter's age and, you know, there become different ways that you can, uh, you know, develop relationships that, that go beyond the, the, the research relationship. Um, but I do, I still, I still find it staggering. I thought there's no way I'm going to get into a football team. Um, and then, you know, the first email that I sent to the first coach during preseason, can I check out preseason? He was like, yep, sure. Come on by. And, um, and, and other, other people, there's, there's a, one of the, one of the, how should I say this? I don't think it really matters. The, one of, one of the fields at this university is named after somebody who owns a soccer team in England. And, and, and he, you know, he, he spent time on the, the field uh, and would watch players and, you know, would come over and talk and say, well, what do you think about this? Do you think this person is doing this, uh, you know, is strong enough, is spending enough time in the weight room? So there's, there's also an infrastructure of people who are watching. It's not, I wasn't the sort of lone, I mean, I was when it was raining, but other than that, I was not, you know, alone, um, non player, non-coach on the field. And my daughter used to run up. I mean, they were so wonderful about my daughter. Um, I, I parent solo and um, often, you know, they would have practices at 10 a.m. on Saturdays. And I would say, all right, Kate, <laughs> get dressed. Um, you know, you're, you're coming with me. And they would let her on the field and they would throw, you know, the football to her. And um, it was, it's a, it's a, it was, it, it was a, it's a pretty unique experience. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it. Um, so I, I really want to dig in then to the kind of question of the subjectivities that you were gesturing to, the subjectivities of these, um, the players first. Um, because in my own dealings with, with athletes and um, hockey players, football players, I have the sense that there's a sort of ambivalence in the attitude of players toward concussions. Mm -hmm. You know, on the one hand, many players are very aware of the risks of the for, of the sport and feel the concomitant anxiety one might well imagine yeah. um, comes from that. On the other hand, you know, at the same time, there's still very much a sense that the sport also provides access, opportunity that would otherwise be denied, right? And there's right. a very, very real understanding of that in the same moment. Yeah. And so, you know, the risk and harm become the cost paid for improved life chances in a sense. And like, that's an actual cost benefit analysis that these individuals really understand that's my yeah. sense you know it's like they, they, they totally get all of that yeah um so i'm just kind of curious does that accord with your own findings how have you found that players are experiencing and understanding the concussion crisis yeah sure uh, that's a great question um i remember when i was doing field work at at gleason's um and i would you know leave the leave leave the the gym and then go home and write up my field notes and say you know to friends, like they're writing the book for me. <laughs> like there's absolutely going to be no analysis because they're doing the analysis, you know, ev every day. I mean, people have real, people have really sophisticated ways of understanding the world in which they live in and their, their role in it. I think, um, I think it's possible that the, 
that the athletes that I work with um, have have are, are resourced differently than maybe some of the people you've you've spoken with, um, and have different life chances. Um, I hate that word, but um, have have different trajectories by virtue of their material resources. So what do I mean? Um, they are in the Ivy League, um, and which doesn't offer athletic scholarships. So there's not a connection between how an athlete performs on the field or recovers from an injury and their place at the school, right? That is not, that is not going to be threatened. And I mean, maybe they don't start or maybe, you know, they're cast to scout team, you know, you know, it's not that there aren't repercussions, but their, their education will not be affected. Um, And you know, this, this, that, that was brought home to me very early on when one of the wide receivers on the team who's incredible got yelled at and he turned around and he said to me, what are they going to do? Fire me. Um, and I was like, you're right. Like, you're a really good player. There's no athletic scholarships. This is up to you, like about whether you, you want to continue. Um, so I think there, the setting that I'm working in is, is more of an amateur setting as sort of classically understood. Um, their life, their life chances really come from the classes that they take and the networking that they do, um, the internships they get. Um, each year, about two people go to the NFL from this team. Um, but even those people who are going to the NFL are fairly well-resourced students, or they come from, from backgrounds that, that, that really can um, provide them with alternatives should football not work out? Um, that said, um, I think pe- people do, people don't want concussions. Um, and there is so much um, discussion about concussions in the media. There's so much, so much education that goes on um, about concussions for teams, at least for this team um, at, at this university, uh, that there's no way to sidestep it. Um, and, and, uh, people on the field get concussions and it, they're awful. Um, I I mean, you know, they, they range from what they used to call a ding, um, to somebody, you know, being in a dark room for two weeks, unable, you know, completely incapacitated. Um, so I think that, that people recognize, um, that this is something they want to avoid. Certainly when there's been a concussion on the field, people, um, players flag down the, the, the coaches and the medical trainer. I have seen like superhuman movement, um, of a, of a medical trainer getting to somebody who's had a concussion. And it's like from down the field, like almost like as if they had flown to the, the person who was concussed. Um, so in that sense, the con- concussions are taken pretty seriously. I think their risks are pretty well known. The protocols are in place. Um, people know that they are not going back, um, you know, anytime soon if they've had a concussion. Um, now, whether or not that leads to underreporting, I think is a really good question. But um, for the most part, these these players aren't going to have to decide between um, brain damage and a livelihood. It's just, it's not... It's, it's, it's not the, this is not a sport of desperation for them. Um, 
And when I ask about it, they'll, they actually say, and they have the luxury to say, um, well, if the medical community really care, cares about O-line, um, then they can do research into shoulder and knee injuries, because that's really what I'm concerned about. I'm, I'm concerned about blowing out my knee. Um, and there, there, there isn't enough, the surgeries aren't, aren't, um, aren't precise enough, um, both for shoulders and, and for knees. Now, the boxers who I worked with are, I think, I, I did hear a lot of what, of what you're saying about the, the athletes that, that you work with. Um, they, they want to get out of the game. They know they're going to, they know they're going to have, um, that brain damage is, 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 is a serious occupational hazard. Um, and one of the things that's wonderful about gyms and also tragic about gyms is that once people stop fighting, they often spend their days at gyms. And a lot of those people, um, are, you know, quote unquote punch drunk. So there are these constant reminders of what can happen to you. Um, I, I think boxers were slightly more resigned. So um, there, there was, yep, we know that we're going to get hit. Um, I want to, I want to get out of this. Um, I want to get my, my family a house and then, then I'll leave the sport. Um, or if I, if I just make this much, then, then I'll get out of the sport. They, they know their time is limited. Um, but I also have to say that that boxers, it's been, it's been extremely frustrating to me that boxers have not really had the privilege, the privilege of being included in the concussion crisis. Their, their brain damage for them is so naturalized that, and they're considered disposable at such a profound societal level that we often don't talk about boxers in the realm of uh, the, the, the people who are at risk of, it's, it's like, oh yeah, we know that let's move on. Um, so I, I do see more of an echo um, with, uh, with, with boxers, although they too will say, if you talk about concussions, it's like, duh, like that's, <laughs> why are you bringing that up? That's the stupidest research question I've ever been asked. Um, and they say that if the medical community wants to support their well-being, that they, they can do research on um, eye injuries and hand injuries. Um, so in terms of concussion, yeah, people know what's going on. They're making cost benefit analyses all the time. Um, but they often, they often have a different set of injuries that are preoccupy them in the short term, much, much more. Absolutely. Um, and, and I really appreciate how, um, throughout most of your answers so far, you've been going back and forth between your current research and your research on boxing. Cause I think that really helps to kind of um, bring everything into sort of a broader perspective. And it, it leads me to kind of think, you know, like your research, because you're focusing on an Ivy League school, as you said, that there are certain sort of conditions that make it different than what a lot of other football players are facing at other schools. Yeah. Um, for example, schools that you've said where like they do have to worry about their scholarship yeah, um, and where they don't have these other um, sort of options and they may not necessarily come from the same sort of wealthy background. And so, I guess I'm kind of wondering, you know, based on maybe your work on what you've seen with boxing is sort of like, to what extent do you think some of these um, concerns about sort of injuries and like people's like players understandings of concussions, how, if I, if I could ask you to speculate for a second, mm. how might you think that that differs if you're looking at a different school that doesn't have kind of the safety nets that maybe an Ivy League school has? 
Oh, I, I think it's a completely different, I could say ball game, but I, I think it's a completely different circumstance. Um, and I think that we would be hearing, I mean, Nathan can speak to this, right? As, as somebody who's, who's talked to athletes um, for whom their place at the school is contingent on their athletic performance. So I, I think I don't, the, the, my work in the Ivy League is not generalizable. Um, this is not designed to be uh, any type of treatise on um, what, uh, what, what, what the what understandings of concussion are in football. Uh, it's really about what, what are interventions um, in the best circumstance, really, like mm -hmm. if, if this is the future of football, if there's, if there's no money tied um, to a place at a school, if these are well-resourced students, and, and not all are, but, but, but many are, um, you know, what, what can that tell us about the f future of football? What is that, what is that sort of best case scenario tell us about what football can become or, or is becoming? Um, but I think it's very different. I mean, that the, you know, college football in general, when people talk about college football, I mean, that is just a, a, a category that is almost, you know, empty rhetoric. It's, you have team, you look at Alabama and that's like an NFL team, you know, and then you look at the teams that I'm working with that I'm sure people from Alabama say are more like high school teams. I'm sure some high school teams can beat the team that I'm working with. Um, I hope that if anybody or well, any of the coaches listen to this, they excuse that. Um, but I think that th those are, those are, 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 are really different circumstances. And I think that that, I mean, that is work, that is occupation. Those are, the, to me, those are occupational labor questions um, and occupational health questions um, that, that, are, that are really predicated on foundations of exploitation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please support the show through our Patreon, which can be found on our website. Until next time, friends. Mm -hmm.